You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 276 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for the third week in a row. My name is Michael Farmer. I was an assistant professor of English somewhere, but now I'm just kind of nothing. But I still have my PhD. They can't take that away from me. This is the annual Halloween crossover event, which means I am not joined by my normal co-host, David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore. Instead, I'm joined by two of my favorite people on the planet, both of them from the Christian Feminist Podcast We have Christina Bieber-Lake, who is the Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Christina, how you doing? I'm doing great, and you are not nothing, Michael. Well, you know, (laughs) professionally, nothing. Okay. Also joining us is Katie uh, Grubbs, who is, are you an adjunct professor at at Houston Baptist University? Is that correct, Katie? Yes. Adjunct professor of English, yeah. Though at the moment, I'm completely online, so don't go looking for me on campus. Look for her on the internet. You can can our listeners sign up for your classes, Katie? Please do because I get paid based on how many students are in my classes. Oh. So I would love more students in my classes online. Yeah, maybe so. I'll sign up, Katie. Thanks. <laughs> Got to get paid is uh, the credo of the adjunct, right? Got to get that yeah, adjunct money. The sweet adjunct money. <laughs> yes, because it's so extensive. Yeah. So this is the third show to air an episode. So maybe if you if you subscribe to the other shows on our network, you already know what we're doing, which is Stephen King novels. But if not, hey, we're doing Stephen King novels. Um, you've already heard the Christian Feminist podcast. They were talking about Carrie. You've already heard uh, City of Man. They, uh, they were talking about a, a book I've never even heard of called Revival. We're talking about Misery. Tomorrow, Book of Nature is going to air their episode on The Shining, and we're going to wrap it all up on Halloween, which is Thursday, with a sectarian review talking about uh, Pet Cemetery. So if you haven't subscribed to all those shows, make sure you do it so you can get the you can collect the full set of Stephen King episodes. Now, we have kind of an uh, odd show today because of the three of us, one of us, me, has both read the book and seen the movie. Then we have Katie, who has only seen the movie, and Christina, who I believe has only read the book. Is that correct? That's correct. So there is a great deal of overlap between the book and the movie, but if you've read the book and seen the movie, you know that they are different in some key ways. So we're going to navigate that as we go through, uh, and hopefully that'll be fine with everybody. I want to start with a really practical question, uh, which is, is this book, is this movie scary? And if so, why? Christina, let's start with you. Did this book scare you? The Okay, you have to understand that I have not seen the movie because when it came out, it completely terrified me, just the um, ads that I saw. I mean, I was, I can't remember, in high school when the movie came out. And as soon as I saw the ads, I thought there is no way I'm going to see that. I've been sort of a scaredy cat when I was younger about movies, and I 
was just sure that she had castrated him, which just seemed terrible to me. And so it was just no way. And some of that kind of hung over. And for when it comes to Stephen King movies, I've seen very, very few of them. And it was only really later in my life that I kind of opened the door to Stephen King because I was so just terrified and I read The Stand and loved it. And then I just didn't read much more um, because there's kind of a thing with um, American literature and Stephen King, which I'm sure we'll get into, you know, this kind of um, is he a serious novelist or not kind of question. And uh, so I just never read very much. And so this is the first time, well, I read the Owen uh, King and Stephen King novel that came out recently, Sleeping Beauties. I read that. But other than that, in The Stand, this is the second purely Stephen King novel that I've read. And I actually thought it was pretty scary. Yeah. Katie, uh, you reported that you were not terribly scared of the movie, though you were prepared to be. No, I was prepared to be very scared because I am, uh, like Christina mentioned, with herself i am very very timid when it comes to scary film um and the uh the only other Stephen king movie i've seen besides uh misery this week is the shining which i always found very very scary not necessarily because of anything that i can pinpoint but that film has just this pervasive air of menace that is really difficult to shake it's got that kubrick Uh, vibe i mean all his movies are are tense that way Yes. And, and, and I was kind of expecting misery to be that way having, because that's, you know, my experience with Stephen King is like the shining, but then it wasn't the same. And I, to me, this, the movie, and I should say listeners, the reason that I didn't read the book is because I I joined this episode very, very late and there just wasn't time, but I had time to watch the movie. So that's why I didn't read the novel. Um, but the, uh, the part, yes. How old were you when you, when you saw the shining? I was in college. So, yeah, I wasn't small. Um, my, my, my pervasive memory of, quote, scary movies as a child is that for some reason my parents thought it would be a good idea when we were at my grandma's house to let us watch The Birds. Oh, The Birds is so birds. scary. And I was like 10. Oh. And so that, that was my scariest movie viewing experience. Like my first scary movie really was, was The Birds. Um, so that, maybe that's why I still am weird about um, watching scary movies. But, um, but yeah, I had seen The Shining in college, but I was expecting Misery to have that same air. And it doesn't so much. And I think that's one reason. And there are some moments in the movie that are, that were shocking because they were like kind of gory or like not like viscerally like uncomfortable mm-hmm. to any person with a physical body, which we all yes. have like, you know, so, um, but yeah, I, I was, I was prepared to be very scared and was slightly, it w- I was pleasantly surprised that I got through it with no issues. I didn't feel the need to hide or cover my eyes or anything like that. So. Yeah. And the movie in particular, I don't know that I would really classify it as a horror movie. It's much closer to suspense for me, mm-hmm. which is a genre. The, the Hitchcock comparison seems pretty dead on. You can imagine Hitchcock making this movie in a way that you can't imagine him making something like The Shining. There's just it's too it's too gruesome. It's too out there. Um, mm-hmm. I the book is probably objectively scarier than the movie. I think that the the book has a, uh, some creepy stuff that's not in the movie, and yet. I'm more scared by the movie just because books don't scare me that much. Maybe I don't have a good enough imagination to be scared by the book. I don't know. You know, I wish we should do it. We should do a whole separate podcast on the, what scares you and when and why. Because it, I just think it's fascinating to think about what scares me as a child 
what scares me now, you know, as a mature reader. Uh, I remember reading books that terrified me so much that I couldn't leave the book in the room with me when I went to sleep at night because just looking over at it would terrify me. And I remember also seeing a 15-second clip on TV that terrified me so much of some film about some little idle man that his chain fell off and he came alive and killed people. I mean, it was 15 seconds that terrified me for months as a, as a child. Did no, you guys um, fascinating? Did you guys ever see the episode? There's an episode of Friends where Joey Tribbiani is reading The Shining, the book. And every time he gets scared, he he puts the book in the freezer. Yes. Because that's it makes him saying. feel safer. Like that I was thinking about that when you're talking about like putting the book out of the room, but also because it's Stephen King. I was thinking about that episode all week because it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought of that, too. Although it's also appropriate given the end of that movie. I, I've never read the book and I know that the book is quite different from the movie. Um, King really hated the movie. Um, but I, I haven't read the book, so I don't really have any commentary on it beyond that. The only book that ever scared me, I was a kid and it was by the guy who wrote, um, the polar express of all things. He had a, he had a book that had pictures and then the first sentence of a story. And the idea was that you would write an ending to the story, but, Uh. oh my gosh, this scared the, this scared the living crap out of me. There was a, there was one of them that was a woman asleep in bed and there was a book next to her and it had a vine growing out of it and like wrapping in in my head anyway, wrapping itself around her neck. And it said, um, he told her not to read the book, but she didn't listen. And man, I, I think I lost sleep for weeks over that. That sounds awful. Over that picture. I'm telling you. But again, it's the, it's the picture because what what frightens me is is images, which is what makes yep. The Shining so scary. Uh, the the, just, yeah. the number of creepy shots in that movie, um, mm-hmm. even even when it's not violent, it's just it's scary. You know, it's because it's unnerving. It's, it's images, but it's what you imagine happens. That's why when I saw the ads for Mercy or misery, I couldn't watch it because I was imagining what would happen and it was worse than what actually happened. Yeah, it's it's really not that violent of a movie. Right. No. There's but a what moment. I imagined yeah. was worse. Well, the movie is quite good, Christina. If if you if you're into the book at all, I would recommend the movie. Kathy Bates yeah, I can get is really it. amazing at it, it now. You know, just as as a younger person I couldn't do it. And I and I can imagine I know Kathy Bates is amazing and so I should see it sometime. And yeah. This was her breakthrough. I mean, this is yeah, the reason anybody true. knows her. That's true. You dirty bird. Dirty bird. <laughs> I wrote down my favorite bits of strange, uh, of strange slang and strange things that she said on my notes here. And I will tell you, almost all of the bad dialogue from the movie is bad dialogue from the book. Mm. So. I think it's so interesting that we are in this in this place where I haven't seen the film and Katie hasn't read the book because it is this kind of productive difference between the the two versions right michael's like our translator yeah that's right i have all i have all the power because i have all the knowledge Mm, i was gonna (laughs) say that appropriate since this you're the only one on this episode who's actually on the christian humanist podcast so i guess that's appropriate i have you guys locked Mm. in my spare bedroom and if you don't watch what you say i'll break (laughs) your leg with a sledgehammer or or cut off your foot with an axe as happens in the book instead of the Mm. movie which Mm. is this is probably the right time to say that we're going to spoil uh, both the book and the movie of for course. anyone who hasn't seen them. 
Fine. You know, Michael, I forgot that it was different or, or never knew. So I was expecting the axe thing, and then instead it was this love shimmer thing, which was worse. Was somehow. it? I think the axe is so much worse. Well, maybe I don't know. Okay, so I didn't even know. So in the movie, they she just breaks took she a breaks his legs with a sledgehammer instead of cutting oh, off his foot. Okay, yeah, I think yeah. cutting off of it is worse. I do too. I do I too. Think it, I, I think it would. I think it probably would legitimately be worse. But I, in in terms of, I was expecting her to like cleanly cut off his feet, and instead she it, it's when the foot goes at a 90 degree angle i just i can't it gives me the willies i did not watch like i looked away in true horror movie fashion mm-hmm. when, when mm-hmm. they smashed yeah don't up. watch yeah. if you christina when you watch this movie don't watch him she does that i will it's sure a terrible idea away. victoria yeah. was sitting next to me and she yelled oh my god <laughs> <laughs> but victoria would do that for almost any scene right yeah yeah she doesn't she yeah. doesn't like scary movies all right. Well, I am glad I have two members of the Christian Feminist Podcast on this episode because I think we have to talk about King's attitude toward women. I know they did the same on the Carrie episode, another another uh, book slash movie that has some troubling descriptions mm-hmm. of women in it. In the book, at least, you don't get this as much in the movie, but in the book, the first thing we learn about Annie Wilkes is his disgust at her body. It's not just his disgust at her. He's disgusted by her breath and the amount of space that she takes up in the world. And Mm -hmm. I I wonder, is it just shameless misogyny? Is it just shameless fat phobia? Or does misery actually have something meaningful to say about the way that men and women interact with one another? <laughs> well, it's so much the succubus, right? The the fir- the opening thing is kind of a, is a rape scene, really. And I did not know what to expect when I opened this book up, but by page five, you have pretty much a succubus rape scene. Um, then there was a mouth clamped over his. By the way, we have no idea what's going on. So we're with the protagonist and he's just experiencing coming into consciousness after having been drugged. It's a pretty powerful narrative device. But so it reads there, there was a mouth clamped over his, a mouth which was unmistakably a woman's mouth in spite of its hard, spitless lips. And the wind from this woman's mouth blew into his own mouth and down his throat, puffing his lungs. And when the lips were pulled back, he smelled his warder for the first time smelled her on the outrush of outrush of the breath she had forced into him the way a man might force a part of himself into an unwilling woman a dreadful mix mixed stench of vanilla cookies and chocolate ice cream and chicken gravy and peanut butter fudge okay that's page five so it's this rape Kind of like Walt Whitman. You teach Walt Whitman. I blow my grit into your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Walt Whitman right? is Walt Whitman has sex yeah. with the reader, whether the reader is yes. interested or not. Well, precisely. Yes. And and it's this: I am taking over. I'm possessing you. You know, which is a theme of the book, right? And he, the protagonist, is put in this weak position, this weakened position, right from the get-go. And she is the the female who is in control, you know, but it's that succubus being in control, the woman who drains the life out of the man. Um, And so, yeah, I'm so curious to to see how they talk about that or how they address that in the film. When you saw it, Katie, did you have that kind of like, oh, my goodness, this is like this woman who is meant to just suck the life out of a man? You know, not not so much. I mean, she when she pulls him out of his car in the film and she's like trying to do mouth to mouth, but 
to me, it wasn't totally clear when she first pulls, first pulls him out that he's not breathing. Well, like, and also that happens much later in the movie. That's a flashback mm-hmm. in the movie instead of being mm-hmm. right at the outset. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, but, but I do think that there, I think that it's just, it's, it's, it's slightly different because in the film, I didn't get that kind of visceral repulsion about her, her body, her person. And actually mm-hmm. in some scenes in the movie, like she, he asks her to eat dinner with him because he wants to try to put some, um, like sleep, like put medicine in her drink to like knock her out. Yeah, right. But she makes herself up and she looks really pretty. Yeah, and I mean so, Kathy Bates is not a not a hideous woman. No, but so I feel like in the film it seems like the emphasis to me is more on her physical strength. Like she carries oh, him on her back away from the away from the wreck scene. She uses a crowbar to bust him out of his car. Like so, it to me the feeling is is more or the the implication is less of the of a kind of succubus like a repulsive succubus thing and more of like a she's a big strong person who's way especially in his injured state way more way more physically strong than he is and so mm-hmm. she can and that helps her to dominate him. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and so I feel like in the, I don't know, what do you think, Michael, to me in the movie, it's less about her, her, her kind of physical appearance and more about her, her kind of strength or the way that she uses her body to, to injure him or maim him or whatever. The movie, him. the movie reminded me a bit, and this is, um, this is anachronistic, but do you guys remember, remember a Wes Craven movie called Red Eye? Have you ever seen that with Rachel McAdams? No, I haven't. It's it's really a pretty good movie. Um, it it has this great bait and switch, which is it sets itself up as a romantic comedy. She has this meet cute with this guy uh, on a plane, and it turns out he's been stalking her. And once the plane takes off, he stops kidding around. And and uh. I I think that that the way that's set up owes something to the film of misery. And that if you didn't know what misery was, and you didn't know the movie was called Misery. Um, you you might think that Kathy Bates was not a threat, that she was a, a beneficent presence in his life. And and you would realize as the movie realizes this, he realizes in the movie that she's trouble. The book doesn't give you that. He's disgusted by her from the beginning. And you know mm-hmm. immediately that it's a horror movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Or a horror book, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. That's interesting. Hmm. Christine, did you find it fat phobic? Um, you know, no, I, I, I didn't because at, at the outset, it's very clear that he's trying to, to say, this is, this is my number one fan and trying to do the whole fan fiction thing, the whole, like, um, the desire of the fan to suck the life out of the author, you know, stuff that felt more and that she was genuinely crazy, right? She'd killed other people. So, um, that felt to me more of what he's talking about rather than a critique of gender or a woman's body. Right. Yeah. Um, I just kind of give him the benefit of the doubt on that because it became so much about her as a reader rather than her as a woman. Well, she's a, she's a consumer, right? So she consumes the books. She consumes him. She, she consumes all this food and the, the book is full of it. The movie, you get a little bit of it, but in the book she goes, she's clearly bipolar. I say clearly yes. because he actually just comes out and says it uh, yes. instead of trusting us to figure out that's what's happening. But when she goes on these manic binges, she eats everything in the house and she's, mm-hmm. she's really inhuman in that, in that sense. She's like a, a consuming fire almost. No, that's right. And so I, I tended to, you know, think about it less in terms of gender, except for the one thing where it's like 
the flip of the genders, right? Like a man who's completely not in control and a woman who is, is what makes it kind of fundamentally interesting. Have you guys read The Power, that new novel? I can't remember the author, but it's all the rage about what would happen if women had the power to disable men as opposed to vice versa. No, I haven't read that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so it to me, it owes a lot to this novel, actually. And so part of the interest of it is is this flipping, right? Like he has no power because his legs are completely demolished and she has him on drugs. And I think Stephen King was kind of ahead of his time of dealing with what would it what would happen if um, if the roles were reversed, you know, uh, it's we're so used to the fact that that men have physical power over women all the time. What would happen if it were the opposite? Well, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this except that an hour and a half ago we were watching Creature from the Black Lagoon with our eight-year-old niece, and she wanted. <laughs> we, we pointed out that in all those Universal horror movies, the monster is always after a woman, and she yes. asked. She asked why that is, and I said, uh, you know, because I'm talking to an eight-year-old. I said that <laughs> it, it appeals to some deep fear at the heart of our psyche about uh, feminist uh, f- feminist roles in life. And uh, she said, what does that mean? And Victoria said, uh, don't worry about it. But it, 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 it occurs to me it occurs to me that King is playing with that, that, that instead yeah, of the, the helpless woman being threatened by the monster, he is. the, the yeah. woman is the monster. Yep. yep. Yeah, for sure. And so it's, it's hard to blame him for saying, oh, he's falling into these stereotypes. Um, of course, he's falling into stereotypes. But because of the rich layers of other things that are being signified, you know, sort of, um, well, classical literature with with female monsters there, too. But then also just uh, the fan fiction element of it that we're, I'm sure we're going to get into. I mean, it, it just there's too much going on to say that it's a simple gendered thing, in my opinion. Well, you mentioned the fan fiction side, so let's get into that. This Misery is at least partially inspired by the negative reaction that he got to his fantasy novel, The Eyes of the Dragon, about which I know nothing. Mm. I, I think it's not too hard to see a critique of fan culture in Misery. There have been a number of high-profile articles about the excesses of fandom lately. Katie, do you think Misery has anything to say to the age of streaming television and the almighty nerd Absolutely. Um, and I and, and part of it, too, is it feels very current because there have been, like you said, some of these really high profile articles. And it's um, it's more apparent than ever because of things like streaming content. But, you know, this type of intense fanatical um, love of something, which is, is fandom, has been around for a super long time. When I was watching the film Misery, I kept thinking about the um the kind of Shakespeare wars of the 19th century, like um, the Astor, mm. the Astor Place riot, when you had like 20 estimates vary, 22 to 31 people died in a fight between partisans of a particular British actor, um, McCready, and uh, and then um, partisans of an American actor who was Edwin Forrest, and there was this massive riot and people died. Um, or, uh, there were also in another, there was another kind of showdown in that same, um, that same time between, um, Junius Brutus Booth, father of John Wilkes Booth, um, mm-hmm. fan, fans of him versus fans of Edmund Keene. And they had, you know, they were called Boothies and Keenites and they would get into rows at pubs over which one was the better actor. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. And that's the worst um, thing a Booth ever did. Right. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> when you get to second and you want to be scared, read the Wikipedia article about Junius Brutus Booth, who one time um, when he was playing Othello, he was he was just kind of a crazy, violent alcoholic in real life. But one time when he was playing Othello, he got he got he legit tried to smother the woman playing Desdemona and she had to be rescued by other actors on the stage. Um, but I, I kept thinking about that, you know, um, and, and other things like that, that impulse has always been around, but it's so much more facilitated now because like in the, you know, in the book you've got, um, and in the movie you've got, um, Annie and she's, she's desperately waiting for the new book to come out. And we still do have to do that with books, you know, but with streaming TV, we might wait really really intensely for the season to drop but once it drops then all of a sudden there's this glut and we have this entire season we can watch right Mm -hmm. so it's not like um another great um thing i read online today which i didn't know was apparently when um charles dickens super fans were waiting for the last installment of the old curiosity shop (laughs) when the boat was coming in they were standing on the dock like screaming at the boat is Nell dead like (laughs) i mean it's just like it is now, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I think that, you know, but I, I think her intense affiliation or intense fascination with the story um, and with a particular character, I think absolutely you can see in things like in things like fan fiction, um, you know, there's and sometimes you'll even see it like kind of metadramatically presented in other stories. So like um, there's an episode of, of one of my favorite TV series, Psych, in which there's a, a, a woman who's a, a huge fan of a particular telenovela. But in, in her case, she believes that the character is real. Mm. Like, so she can't separate the actor, actors from the story. And she comes to believe that the character is real. And so she starts killing off people who hurt the character in the story. Like, but she kills the actors playing them. Um <laughs> You know, uh, just stuff like that. So, um, and I mean, my, my seven-year-old does this. She loves to show the Octonauts. And so this week she's been making up in her own mind and drawing pictures of superhero versions of each Octonauts character. And she has thought through how they transform, what their special powers are, what each one has a logo. That's what she told me. She said, this is the logo for each one of them. Wow. And she's making up stories about them. She's, it's like fan fiction, you know? Um, so I think, I think it's definitely, Apropos, one of the things that I really liked in one of the articles that you um, sent me, Michael, and we should link them both, is um, in the article at The Baffler, he talked about the kind of slow drip of information that is given to fans to keep them interested. Like, here's an article Mm -hmm. and here's a teaser trailer. And now, oh, we're at Comic-Con and we're going to say like three things. And then you're going to obsess about them for months before we tell you anything else. And that kind of it's tempting to see that as just only good on the side of the marketing people because they keep everyone interested. But that writer in the Baffler article talked about it. Also, every time one of those things drops or one of those details comes out, it gives everybody who's a super fan a chance to demonstrate their fandom again, to perform that part of their identity for everybody to see and show that they're a super fan by linking it or whatever, you know, by talking about it online. Um, And that was the only other thing I was thinking about is so often the conversation now about fandom is about communities fan communities online particularly kind of piling on or always just discussing among themselves things ad nauseum or whatever. But Annie Wilkes is just completely isolated. You know, Mm -hmm. she's alone in her home with these stories that she's obsessed with. And so she's not having productive dialogue about the story with other people or, you know, writing slash fiction online or whatever, you know, it's very much a story of a person who is, um, sinking into a, a, an item of popular culture, but in a completely isolated and thus deforming way. 
Hmm. Well, there's so much here, right? Because in when this book was written, I think it was what 1986, right? Um, it was a totally different world uh, in the sense of if you were watching something on TV, you had to either tape it on a VCR or wait for the show to come out. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Charles Dickens because the, this whole idea of serial fiction, of course, is nothing new. And, uh, you know, even Henry James, some really great, you know, Dickens, James, really great writers did this. Um, but nowadays you can form communities in a way that you couldn't um, even just, you know, 40, 50 years ago, right? So it's a it's an interesting thing. Like, what would it be to be a community back at, do you see what I'm saying, um, in, even in 1986 of, of fans? And I'm not saying that she's, she's definitely isolated, right? Okay. But what would it be to be in a community of fans yeah. back well, then? I mean, right? they, they had, they had Trekkies. Yeah, yes. So that you would there, you get know, together at conventions, I suppose. Yeah. You would get together at conventions, but that was kind of like few and far, you know, between, right? You couldn't uh, have access 24-7 to your favorite. Yeah, it was yeah. not access 24-7 for sure. And I just think that's something that's so different. Um, when I was reading this book, I kept thinking, wow, this is just so different. There's no cell phones. There's no internet. There, you know, and it just kind of struck me how different it was, that that's how she could get away with part of, you know, keeping him there for that long without people knowing too, right? Um, it would be, wouldn't it be really interesting to, to have this book sort of rewritten for the 21st century? It would be so interesting to see how those factors might, you know, factor in. I don't know. It would be like a mob descending on this. Yeah, right. It could be a mob. (laughs) And I I I should say too, I I, I meant to mention this before and I'd be remiss in not mentioning that what this reminds me most of, or what it, it feels a lot like is is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle when he when he killed off Sherlock Holmes? Yes, yeah. and all which is mentioned in the book. Yeah, it's mentioned in the novel. Okay, oh, it is mentioned yeah. in the novel. Okay, oh, yes. good. Yeah, because yeah. that's the obvious that's the obvious analog, right? Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing that makes me think of most in terms of contemporary phenomena is the the kind of vast entitlement that fans feel over these properties, and and so totally like the this the, is it the most recent season of Game of Thrones? Was it the sixth one? Yes. There's well, a very popular petition yeah. being passed around online demanding yeah, change that, the ending. Yeah, yeah, well, they rewrite the whole season. Yep, yep. Uh, that, that's sucks. just yeah. fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and I, mean, I don't, I don't not... care about Game of Thrones at all, so I, I don't right. really have an opinion on whether it was good or not. But the idea that fans should be able to demand that something they don't like change, that that's terrifying to me. Yeah, and so that's what's so interesting about this book, isn't it? Because that was not really possible in the same way back in 1986, right? So it'd be like a fan on the side writing a letter to the publisher or whatever, but it wouldn't be like this online petition, right? Well, and it seems uh, so fast, particularly with with streaming services, like you said. I was thinking about yeah. this the other day that, like, if, you know, now, like, a series that I really love is The Expanse, um, which was on Sci-Fi. And then after three seasons, it, you know, they got rid of it and all the fans freaked out. And then Amazon Prime has now picked it up. And so Amazon Prime is going to release the fourth season. Well, if that mm-hmm. had been possible when Firefly was on, yes. that could have been totally different. And that was not that yes. long ago. 
that like, was not you know, that long ago. But I feel like that's one of the, you know, you see, like, with the Game of Thrones petition, you see that more in a in a more negative way, right? Like, that we want you to change the show we love. You did it wrong. We have this, like, platonic vision of the show, how it should have been, and you, you transgressed that, right? But the, I guess the more positive side would be the, we love this thing, and a network killed it, so we're going to try to find it life somewhere else. I, that, I don't know that that's positive, though. I, I think you've got kind of a monkey's paw scenario there it comes back but okay it's not human let's, you know <laughs> let's talk about what terrified me as a child thank you monkey's paw that was one of those things that terrified me. That, book, that book did scare me but oh my I, gosh i was scared out of my brain so a show i loved uh futurama got canceled and, and brought back and my lord was it terrible when it came back ah uh, just like monkey's paw that's, now that's I'm trying to think of one that was good when it, Veronica when it Mars, was. The Veronica Mars movie and the most recent season of Veronica Mars were both pretty good. I'm not sure they needed to exist, mm-hmm. but they were pretty good. The Breaking Bad movie that just came out is good. Oh, yeah. We just saw that. It was really good. It, this is related to the book because one of the interesting things about this novel is that Stephen King recognizes that being captured by this woman was forcing him to re-enter a storyline that he thought he was done with and reinvigorate it. I thought that is what set this apart as, as a novel. Do you guys see what I'm saying? She ends up being right. She ends up being right that he had something more to give this franchise. You know, that's really interesting. Oh yeah. You would not get this from the, there's no way you could get this in the movie. Um, at least I'm guessing because I haven't seen the movie, but I just can't imagine it would be communicated that suddenly he's like reinvigorated as a novelist. He's not able to go out and party and get drunk and whatever. So he's just addicted to the painkillers and he starts to find he writes a better novel than he's written up to this point. I think that's incredibly interesting. So that that relationship between the fans who really know you in a sense better than you know yourself, isn't that intriguing? Yeah, it is. And and the movie the movie downplays that for the reasons you're saying, Christina. Yeah, there's no way that you can't. There's just you can't. But if you think about Firefly, Katie, I mean, there are so many fans of Firefly, right? If there had been a way to let that impulse out, like to say there's so much more here and you know the original makers of that could have done so much more, right? Yeah, yeah, because that one was so short. Yeah. It's not like a it series so short lived. For like six years, and then it gets canceled, and no. people get mad. But they, you know. they made the movie, and the movie well, is made, not very yeah, good. They made, well, they made Serenity. Well, the interesting thing about that, though, is that Serenity and Firefly, the, the storylines are actually kind of different. It's almost like a different version. It of is. Story. I agree. And so it's almost like they rebooted the, it rebooted itself. It's, it's, I agree. It, I mean, but you're right, Michael. I mean, I you know, it, it th- that film has its problems. Um, and it, I mean, I, and I would say up until the recent stuff with streaming, that was would have been hailed by fans everywhere as the victory, right? A time it actually happened when they got the, the when the Serenity movie happened, and they were able to do that. But I see what you're saying, Michael, about bringing something back is not always is not always good, and sometimes it's kind of zombified. And I'm waiting to see if this season four of the Expanse that Amazon's doing, if it's going to be like that, because in this case, it's all the same people. No time has passed. There was no like break of a couple of years between literally just now Amazon pays for it. So I'm trying yeah. to figure out, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if there will be any diminution or diminution of, of, of quality or not. Because a television show in particular, 
really is lightning in a bottle. You you have to have all these pieces that come together. And when it's canceled for three years and you come back, those pieces aren't going to be there. The no, pro- Probably right. the most spectacular yeah. failure is the Arrested Development seasons on Netflix. But you're right that if the entire production is the same and they just switch networks, I don't, I don't, that's not really the same thing. You're right, that might be fandom used for good rather than evil. I just find it incredibly interesting from the perspective of creativity that here's a guy who had just done this kind of for money. I mean, I'm talking about the protagonist in Misery and finds out that there's really more to invest in this story and he wants to tell more of the story. And it was only because this fan pulled it out of him. So she was a succubus who ended up giving him kind of his muse back. And it's pretty subtle and a pretty interesting story, you know, that he's telling there. Yeah, that's true. It makes her not as evil. Well, right. And it also says something about creativity and about storylines and something, you know, I'm not sure. Um, And it just makes me think of Firefly. It's like if there had been that opportunity there, you know, that could have continued or something like that. Um, I don't know, you know, because it, yeah, it makes her, it makes her a really complex figure in his life. You know, his fans are a complex relationship with the author. Well, I think we've been hinting at this, that one thing the book does that the movie can't really do is play around with genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the book we're reading when we read Misery is interrupted by long excerpts from the novel that Annie is making Paul write, complete with the missing ends that are filled in by hand. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. I will confess, though, that I skimmed those sections. Christina, was I missing anything by not reading Misery Returns? No. I skipped it too, oh, okay. and I think he knows people skipped it, don't you? I, I I don't know. I always feel guilty about skipping things in books. No, I mean i I couldn't wait to get through that and get to the, you know. And I wasn't even thinking, oh, there's something hidden in here. I just pretty much skimmed them and got to the next part. Yeah. So do you think? Would you say then that the postmodernism in the novel is just a kind of window dressing, and that he's not doing anything? worth doing with it yeah i would i mean what was surprising to me about the novel was this the scheherazade connection um i loved that and the fact that he is trying to stay alive when she's in power and he's you know um i'm going to tell a story that's going to just spin out just enough um to keep me alive for another day and so the the excerpts of the text of that that were thrown in there were just to me just kind of boring interludes but they were to to i guess stress to us that that's what she's getting you know to keep him alive it seems like a genuinely terrible novel yeah i totally agree <laughs> and yet it's a bestseller right for him when he finally gets out of all of this but then also as you as you mentioned earlier it seems like the in the world of the novel, this is a good book. Paul is satisfied with what he's written yeah, and not yeah. just because he oh, keeps yeah. making him money. So I wonder, I wonder if that's a commentary on Paul's own delusions or whether King is just not that good of a novelist. <laughs> well, that's a huge question. Is it not? That's a huge question. And there are moments when you catch Stephen King 
at the height of his game and then moments when you realize the height of his game isn't very high? Well, it depends on what game he's playing. No, so, so, that's so exactly what I'm saying. He, he must be one of the most imaginative writers who's ever lived. He comes up with Completely. these unbelievable yeah. situations that are really yep. compelling. And then when he sits down to write about them, the dialogue is bad. The characterization is yeah. bad. But the, the books are compelling because of what happens in them. Right, right. But you can see him kind of pressing against that by things like the Scheherazade connection. I mean, that's a deep literary connection. And the fact that um, the man starts to realize that he played Scheherazade to himself, that it was only the continuing to write the novel that kept him alive for himself, like, in other words, didn't commit suicide. I mean, that's pretty profound literary observation. Yeah, yeah, Um, there's ideas in this novel. There's ideas in this novel. And I think that you see him kind of indicating his frustration at being ignored by the Academy. You you know what I'm saying? Like by people like me, I am people who ignore Stephen King as a significant American writer um, because I do not teach him in my contemporary American literature class. Right. So you see a little bit of that in there. Um, and, and again, I have not read like all of Stephen King's novels, so I have no way of, of, of Nobody saying. Nobody has read just, all of Stephen King's okay, novels. Okay, <laughs> correct. My mom maybe has. She really loves it. But I feel a little bit of that angst in there. But on the other hand, also saying, so what? I'm making you know millions of dollars. <laughs> There's a little bit of both in there. Because here's the something else that I don't know, Katie, if they got this in the movie at all. But the, in the book, it was so wonderfully done that one of the major themes of the book is is the gotta. Like you have to wait, you have to turn the page. Like there's, you got to take the pill, you got to, you know, take the drug. You you have to get the next installment, and that is what keeps you going. The gotta. Um, that's, she talks about it when because yeah. she talks about going to see film serials at the movie theater. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 and loving. Um, and then yes, finding out what it. happened the next week. So yeah, that I mean, and I and I I loved that because so much of I think of of the devotion of fans sometimes is waiting for that next thing, which I think is one reason people and you'll hear, there's this really weird thing now where you'll hear particularly kind of millennials and and kid, and people even younger than that talk about going through a species of grief when something's over. Like when right. the last Harry Potter book came out, people were like super sad, and then they're like, but we still have the movies. And then the last movie came out. And everyone was depressed. I so so yeah. I think knowing that something else is coming absolutely is is a big presence in the movie too. And I, I that was one of my favorite parts. That's kind of how I felt at the end of Endgame, which I I'd been looking forward to oh, for so long. And it was yeah. good. I liked the movie, yeah. but it, at at the end it was like, okay, so am I done with this property now? Yeah, like what? Yeah. What's next? Speaking of, of fandom, that, that that was one of the I'm very selective in my I haven't seen like every every Marvel property, but I, I was really wanting to see that one. And I bought a ticket to go by myself. But my because I, I, I was going to see it after my parents left and I didn't think I'd be able to get a ticket closer to opening night. But then my parents were here and my dad so much wanted to see it with me that he bought us. He like went up to the movie theater window. Like, cause he couldn't find anything online and he's like, it couldn't hurt to ask and managed to get his tickets for like an 1145 PM showing. And we went, and saw it. are you like, kidding I'll, me? No, so I'm not joking. Night? Um, no, it wasn't opening night. I think it was the next night. 
I know. It, 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 and y'all, we were there. We're there at midnight in this movie theater, and there are people there with like kids under ten. They let oh, they kept I'm their kids surprised. up. So, I mean, it was crazy. I couldn't believe it. But um, but it the, but the 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 experience of being in the theater with jammed to the rafters with that many people who all cared enough to show up at midnight was energizing. It was yeah. cool. There was something about it that was because everybody was there for the same reason and everybody was super excited about it. And that's one of the things about fandom that I don't think we don't get that a lot of other places in life. Um, mm-hmm. that feeling of united in excitement about something that is the beloved object for everyone in the room. But, you know, that really raises the question that I'm trying to get at, and I'm not doing a very good job of getting at it. But when when the protagonist says, I play Scheherazade for myself, that I'm writing this character with the god of the next scene, cliffhanger, whatever, to myself stay, you know, so that I don't commit time. What is the great commentary about why we read, why we follow fiction, why we why we write right is is it to kind of create a kind of reason for existing right like i i i'm going to get up tomorrow because i got to find out what happens um mm-hmm. starting to get metaphysical on a friday night but that's this novel yeah. is smart enough that it got me to that place you know where it was like this is pretty profound like it and it's not just because he's a writer it's it's because it's like what energy you know, you said you, there were people, they were energized by this, right? It gave them something to do, something to think about. And it's not just escape. There's something else going on there. Um, I don't know. Sorry, I went down a metaphysical rabbit trail. No, that's good. Another influence on this book was King's very well-publicized drug addiction, which was reaching a fever pitch in the early 1980s. The, the story everybody tells, you'll probably hear it on every show uh, this week, is that he doesn't even remember writing Cujo because he was so high. Um, Paul becomes addicted to this fictional drug, Navarol. Um, But King has also said that Annie Wilkes is a kind of living metaphor for his own drug addiction, which he felt trapped by. Katie, do you think that the movie gives us anything to chew on in terms of the way that addiction works? To me, not not very much. And I was a little bit I was a little bit disappointed. I was a little bit frustrated, in part because in the movie, Paul doesn't seem addicted to it. The drug, I mean, like, you know, at a certain point in the film, he decides he he decides to stop taking the pills and hiding them. And the way that it was played in the movie, I kind of interpreted that decision as because he, you know, he didn't want her to be keeping him drugged because he wanted to keep his head on a swivel. He's trying to figure out how to escape. And also at one point he steals more pills from her stores because he's going to try to drug her with them. But there's no implication. Like she says to him things like, you really need your medicine or, you know, um, because your pain is so bad. But to me, at least for the film, what works better is, is that, that metaphorical idea of addiction. Because I could see that the way that if she, she, if you see her as an embodiment of his addiction, that she's she's keeping him trapped. He can't escape. He tries. He makes these various attempts to try to break free, and every time it doesn't work. Um, and even the end of the film, when she just won't die, like I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, and I mean, I think there's something there, like you know, that that um, mm-hmm. that because uh, and and maybe part of that too is because. And maybe this is reading way too much into it, but I feel like so many of the ways that people can successfully 
break free from addiction so often involve being in community with other people, yeah. like going to AA or, you know, or whatever, um, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's the one I, you know, that I ha- I've had some experience with friends or family members um, being in AA. So that's why I mentioned that one. But um, like, so when, but he's all alone. Right. And so he's trying to break free from this. If you see her as addiction, whatever, then I think to me, that's one of the things I see it ways I see it working metaphorically is that he doesn't have any help. Right. There's no support for him to break free from Annie. And And she she actually she actually cuts off his means of support. This is this is a way that the movie is very different from the book. The, The book is claustrophobic. You never get outside of Paul's head. Yeah. In, in the movie, it cuts back and forth between their story and a, and a much lighter story of uh, a sheriff trying to find him. And then, of course, she she kills the sheriff right when you think that um, right when you think the sheriff's going to rescue him. She kills a, a police officer in the book in a much more brutal way. But we've only seen the police officer for about five pages when it happens. Yeah, it's like a glimpse. And I was wondering why Katie said, like, oh, you liked him. I was like, you hardly know him. He's like, I was attached to that sheriff, (laughs) man. Yeah, you get to know the sheriff much more than you get to know the officer. Yeah, the sheriff has a definite personality in the movie. And so but you know what? I get I get that because it makes that moment shocking. Like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I I don't and I mean, I knew that. I knew that Paul was going to get away in the end because I knew how the story ended that way. And so mm-hmm. I guess I thought that maybe his re- he would be rescued and that's how it would go down because I didn't read the book. And then, boom, shoots him in the chest. And I, I mean, I, I, I was alone in the house because it was the middle of the day, but David was at work. The kids were napping. And I and I pulled, like you said, like Victoria did. I was like, what? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like I squeaked, Wait, like, did she oh, mow him over with the lawnmower in the movie? No, she just shoots no. him. In the, in the no. book, she runs over his head with a lawnmower. Oh. Okay, okay whoa, that's way worse. Yeah, yeah no. And you then, can see why they didn't do it. No, yeah, she shoots him, but it's from behind, so you don't see it coming. He's looking down the yeah. staircase, and he sees Paul Sheldon, and you're like, he found yeah. him. Somebody found him, and then boom. Yeah. Well, in fact, she says four words in the book. It's like, you're that guy, or something. I can't remember what the four words Holy were. Holy S, you're that guy. Yeah, you're that guy. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's just as shocking as you describe in the movie as in the, in the book. It's totally shocking. I was not expecting it at all. Um, that was, did Michael, did you see the movie before you read the book? No, I read the book first. Okay. But were you shocked? Do you remember when you first read the book? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think that was going to happen. I mean, I knew yeah, that we I were still totally 75 pages from the end of the book, yeah. so I figured well, she, I he wasn't going to get out yet. I, what did you so guys did think about? Um, what did you guys think about the addiction thing, though? Like, I don't. I mean, to me, it didn't feel very strong in the movie. But oh, and I guess Michael, because you you had both. What did you think about that? I think that her as a metaphor for drug addiction works better in the movie because she seems like his friend at first. It slowly oh, yeah. dawns on him that she means okay. him ill. And I think I think that works pretty well for a drug addiction. In the book, um, you get much so much more of his interior world that he talks very openly about how he knows he's addicted to the novel and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's also effective in its way. The, the movie and the book are doing two different things there. But I think the movie gets her as a metaphor uh, better than the book does. I that sounds right. Well, I haven't seen a lot of Stephen King movies, and I this is the only book of his I've read. But I know that when he wants to make a villainous character especially scary, he makes them a fundamentalist Christian. Um, and in fact, he does that with Annie, uh, which uh, it, it's not a major part of her character. But all the times when she's really, really frightening, 
she talks like a fundamentalist Christian or like Stephen King's impression of a fundamentalist Christian. Do you think he's just bigoted against fundamentalists or is he drawing on some legitimate connection between the Gothic and fundamentalist Christianity? <laughs> Compared to the handmaid's tale, it's, <laughs> I just bought, you know, I just watched Tulu the, the all through the whole seasons of the handmaid's tale. And it's just, it's so completely dripping with, critique of fundamentalism that I hardly even noticed it reading this novel, right? Because that was so over the top. <laughs> I, to me, it was, I don't know. I, and I mean, like, I haven't read the other stuff either, but it, it almost feels like a narrative cheater shortcut yes. to have, yes. to have, to have a person say, God told me to do this. Like that, because it, it, it automatically seems creepy, but also it automatically makes a person seem crazy, particularly if the, if the thing the person is about to do, we can tell it's horrible. And then they're saying, God told me to do it, you know, and um, in, in our particular landscape, in, in the American landscape, I feel like, you know, often that then it has been kind of a fundamentalist Christian um, representation. But I did, I noticed it in the, in the film, I noticed first just that she was wearing that she had the, a really obvious cross necklace on. So even before she says that stuff and in the very beginning of the movie, she she her first like big freak out is about him using profanity in his new book in the manuscript. And she has all these weird slang words and stuff. Yeah, I know you guys said that's in the book, too. Like dirty bird. Cur- yeah, dirty bird. <laughs> um, and I, I, I do want to start saying things are oogie now. Um, yeah, I like oogie. that. I like yes. that as an adjective. Um, but that that kind of. um prudishness disguising something that's really kind of savage I think is also just another way of presenting a kind of I don't know Freudian id you know disguised by um, proper behavior so I mean he might have cloaked it in some religiosity but it's it's something that you know you see lots in lots of other places I don't know it feels a little lazy to me I'm gonna be honest Uh, the part that really made me want to throw the book across the room was when she kills that officer she runs over his head with the, the lawnmower, but the way she gets him down on the ground is by stabbing him in the back with a cross. Oh, yeah. That was bad. What? Yeah. Yes. Come on. Yeah, I don't know. She could have just used a kitchen knife. I, I don't know what Christians ever did to Stephen King, but he's doing, he's giving it back to him. That's for sure. Although I have to say, I didn't feel like maybe it was just because of the Hulu thing with The Handmaid's Tale, but I didn't feel like there was much of that. Um, but maybe I'm just kind of so sick of it that, that I ignored it. But the cross thing was over the top. There, there, I didn't feel like there was, was not as much as there is in, character in the book. There, there was there wasn't as much as there was in Carrie, um, as I understand it. But I is there a lot in the film misery? Uh, I mean, Katie mentioned the two things really. It, it's it's I think it's much mm. more blatant in the in the um, book than the movie. Oh really? Okay. okay. I just didn't pay much attention to it then. Well, if you'd just gotten Maybe. done with the the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, that, that's it. I'm just blind. It's just absolutely ridiculous. I'm sorry, but that's a that's for another episode. I will say that um one and this just now occurred to me because you were talking about it, Michael. But one thing about that film that might be interesting for a Christian viewer is that 
one, I mean, a Christian might not like seeing Christianity made to seem sinister. On the other hand, if, if you know, for an Orthodox Christian, if a person starts saying things like, God told me to do this terrible thing, right? Like the idea that, that she's receiving some kind of special revelation, like as, a, as an Orthodox Christian viewer, immediately you're going to go, well, that I'm, um, this is, you know, you're going to start to feel uneasy, like um, for different reasons, you know, because like a Christian's not going to be creeped out by the idea of someone being Christian, which is so often true, I feel like in secular life now. But the things that she says are not right. And so I feel like for that reason, that's another level of, of unease for a Christian viewer with this movie. Yeah, that's is true. The types of things that she says God told her to do. I guess I get maybe I'm too defensive. But when I when I read that, I thought, oh, this is what Stephen King thinks religious people are. But that's probably not fair. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Stephen King's website reports that he believes in God and reads the Bible. I'm making side eye over here. You guys can't see it. I'm 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 a little <laughs> I'm a little skeptical of that, but okay. Maybe maybe that's true now. I don't know. I'm interested to know I'm I'm interested to hear the City of Man episode on revival because I think the central character of that mm. is a a minister. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah, I feel like I don't know enough, enough about Stephen King to answer that question. I did not feel like it was a huge part of this book, but I could have just been ignoring it. Or, you know, I'm probably just overly sensitive to it. No, not necessarily. I just, yeah. Well, the, the, the movie was directed by, of all people, Rob Reiner, who is pretty much untouchable in the 1980s and 1990s. This is the mm-hmm. penultimate film in a 10-year run that includes, this is really amazing, um, this is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, <laughs> A Few Good Men, uh, another King ad- adaptation, Stand By Me, the movie right before Misery and Reiner's Corpus is When Harry Met Sally. So he, oh my goodness. He, he just has this unbelievable run until 1994 when he releases North and then apparently never makes a good movie again. Wow. Yeah. Uh, misery, That's a lot. Misery seems to me like the odd man out in that series. I mean, those movies don't have a whole lot in common with one another, except that Misery doesn't feel like any of the other ones, not even the other King adaptation. Katie, did you see anything in this movie that felt like Rob Reiner to you? Now, I Well, and I'll preface this by saying I have not had experience of all of the Rob Reiner films. Um, definitely Spinal Tap, Princess Bride. Um, I remember North. Cause I was a kid when it came out. Um, but there were, I, I didn't realize till I knew that Reiner had directed this movie. Um, but I didn't realize until I was watching the credits when I was watching the film yesterday that William Goldman wrote the movie misery. Yeah. Uh, who also wrote princess bride. The who, book who also movie. wrote princess bride, but this was first right before princess bride. But one no, thing no. I was, no, no, this Wait. is 1990 princess bride is 1987. That's right. Sorry. I flipped it. Um, one thing when I was thinking about that, though, I, I do I do remember thinking that I wonder if the idea of doing the misery film um, appealed to Goldman because you have that in the book, the book within the book like um, idea of, you know, in the in the misery book, there are passages from Paul's misery book. And it's and it's about does that make sense? And it's, so it's 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 like meta narrative. There's a meta narrative in the same thing in the same way that it happens in The Princess Bride, mm-hmm. where you have someone reading a book in a, to another person. And it's yeah. Anyway, I, I, I was thinking about that. Other than that, as far as the kind of filmmaking flourishes, to me, there were parts of the score of misery that felt Rob Reiner esque to me the, the way the, the type of music he was matching with the action felt 
a little bit like some of his other movies. Some of the funny moments, this movie was unexpectedly funny to me. I did not expect to laugh at this film as much as I did. Um, and I think some of the funny moments reminded me of some of his other movies. My favorite camera shot in the movie, I don't know if this is characteristic of Rob Reiner. You guys can tell me. My favorite camera kind of thing in the movie is when the first time he gets out of his room, he's trying to get back to his room because he hears her coming like up the steps. But there's this series of tight shots on like her face, his wheels, his face, her feet. It's like cl- a series of close ups, you know, that are kind of showing his flight in a way that is very different than if they if he'd shot it from the very end of the long hallway, just watching him flee all the way down. That mm-hmm. was one of the most interesting camera shots to me, but I don't know if that's Reiner specific. I don't know if it is either. Barry Sonnenfeld hmm. was the director of cinematography, um, who's one of the the 1980s great uh, cinematographers. I mean, so the the movie is really well put together. It's well written. It's well. Uh, directed it's well shot and you know the acting at least on the kathy bates and james Kahn side is also really good I, I i think the the movie is probably ultimately more successful than the book is although i'm sure stephen king wouldn't want to hear that <laughs> any thoughts on rob reiner christina what, no what happened although, to him that's, that's just an amazing string of successes when you think about it yeah it, it's just too bad that I think everything he's done since has been pretty universally hated. I mean, North is... Yeah, and why is that? That's so weird. Maybe people just have a a certain number of excellent works they can put out, and then they're empty. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Michael, you talked about TV shows being like lightning in a bottle, but maybe he was of the 80s. Maybe so. I mean, maybe that was his his magic moment. And then, Mm. you know, he caught it, and then it passed. I don't know. I hope we're not all in our current magic moment and it's going to pass. Right? (laughs) Who says it hasn't already, Christina? Oh, thanks a lot. I was was thinking about myself. (laughs) 15 minutes of fame. Let's go. 15 seconds. That's right. Yeah, the internet age sped everything up. Yeah, it's 15 seconds. I'm just worried that our fans aren't going to like this episode as much as our previous Halloween crossovers. And they're going to come uh, hold us at gunpoint and make us re-record it. <laughs> you mean that axe point and <laughs> sledgehammer, sledgehammer. Point. also with an know. IV and uh, syringes and things to keep us docile. <sighs> I actually thought the book was pretty good. Surprisingly. I, I will say that. And surprisingly smart. Yeah, it's not a stupid book. I I don't it's think It's not he, a stupid book. I I don't think he's good at characterization. But mm, I agree. There, there's some really good things about the book, and I think the movie is one of the all-time great thrillers. Yeah. I mean, it's super fun as a reader and and of course, again, going back to that the gotta I have to turn, I have to turn. You're aware that you have to turn the page. You're aware that you can't stop reading this book. And that's kind of cool. Like you're aware that he's doing this to you. Mm-hmm. I, I find that extraordinary. Like it's the giftedness of, of a suspenseful storyteller, right? So that when it, you finally get to the end and he's stuffing pieces of the burning manuscript into her mouth, I'm like practically cheering, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm kind of like embarrassed at myself for the cheering that I feel 
like, yeah, stuff that burning manuscript in her mouth. Yeah, choke you know? that woman. And all of this stuff. Choke that woman with the, you know, like, but because it fits the whole possession theme, right? Like consuming the words of the writer and possessing them. And he's just shoving them in her mouth and you just kind of love it. I, I felt kind of human and kind of embarrassed and delighted that I was human. Hmm. Um, and well, you know, that's a, that's, I, I like what you said, Christine, too, about turning the page, because I think you feel that so much more when you're reading a book. Because like with streaming video and stuff, like if I'm if I'm binge watching an episode, yeah, like I have to stop it. Like, but there's it doesn't take the effort for me to go to the next point. But when you're reading a book, you have to keep turning. Which and I I will I'll I'll out myself. I'm the kind of person that if I've got a brand new book and I'm and and I I get like too I'm too impatient sometimes. So I will skim, like Mm. towards the end. And then maybe see, because I really want to know what happens badly enough that as soon as I'll skim ahead and then go back and finish the entire book. Like, and David mm-hmm. always gets on at me for doing that. But I'm like, but and I, what I say is it's going to be tough for me to settle down and read every word until I know yes, right, right, what, will, right. what will occur. That's what I would always do, which and I don't, you guys wanted me to tell the story about when I wrote into a favorite author. Yes. You guys yes, want me to tell right. the story before we go? Yes, absolutely. So I, um, I have for a long time, not as much anymore, partially because they're putting out fewer books, but also just because I'm in a different place in my life. But when I was in college and, and when I was in early in grad school, I used to read books by this, by these guys, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. And they had a series of kind of thrillers about this guy, um, Agent Pendergast, who was an FBI agent. And, um, each, you know, full of cliffhangers, lots of excitement. But, um, in one of their books, they, um, they killed off uh, a recurrent character. Um, he wasn't the protagonist, but he was a, a journalist character. And he had been, I think that he had been in four, three or four books already um, by these writers. And he, I mean, he was, he was a dynamic character. He had changed over time. He wasn't just like static and, and he had made it through two or three really dangerous situations that should have killed him. And then in, in, in the, the new book I was reading, I had just bought this book and Within the first 10 pages, that guy gets murdered in his own apartment on his anniversary, like just cut down. I mean, there's no fight. He doesn't even have time to defend himself. And I was just livid um, and because I, I felt like, you know, they hadn't done justice to the character. It was a little it was like five percent Annie Wilkes, maybe. So I wrote them a letter, an email. And I, you know, I said, one, why did you decide to kill this guy Two, why that way? And they wrote me back. I was floored. I did not. It took months. Maybe three or four months later, I got an email back and they're basically and I I mean, I couldn't fault them for it. Their basic answer was the reason we killed that guy to show that nobody's safe. That, you know, because and they said they said, if you keep on if you keep on writing a story and no one ever nobody important ever really dies, it rings false because, you know, people have to die. And 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 somebody has to die in a scary situation. If nobody ever does, it doesn't ring true. And um, so in the end, I was satisfied with the reason why they took him out. But I was still I've still never been satisfied with the way that he died, Um, because to me, it felt it it, it felt ignominious. Like there was nothing heroic about it. It was he was killed the way you know what it was. He was killed the way that somebody gets killed in a crime procedural before the music that has the credits. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the (laughs) pre-credits, like where they discover a dead body or there's a girl walking down the street and then and she sees a dark figure and she screams and there's blood. That's how this guy died. It just felt throwaway. And so I was very upset. But that was my Annie Wilkes moment when I got mad at a writer and mm-hmm. wrote it. That story reminds me of the time I wrote a letter to Anne M. Martin after she killed off Claudia's grandmother. Oh, I love that, Michael. That didn't really happen. What? Come I'm on. sorry. 
But hey, I knew that Claudia's grandmother dies in the Babysitter's Club novel. It's going to give me something. And, no, and I didn't remember that, and I was a huge Babysitter's Club fan. I was too, um, yeah. I'm, I'm embarrassed that, to say. Is that something Victoria did and she said she did it? No, no, no. Oh. I mean, maybe she did it, but I didn't do it. Oh, man. I'm feeling old. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, Michael and I are okay. very much 90s kids over here. Millennials. Late yeah. 80s, we're 90s kids. Yep, you are. I've got uh, my, I've got my day glow orange shirt. Anyway, uh, is there anything else you guys want to say about this book, this movie, Stephen King? One, one quick thing. I, I really do think it's about the power of storytelling, and I, I love that. I think that's a, to reiterate, but I do think it's still in the realm of, of pop culture, which I feel like the best difference that I've heard between pop culture and sort of deeper high culture, if you really want to call it that, is I'm not sure I would want to read it again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kind of it, it spend itself and then it's done. But I just love meditating on the power of storytelling. I um, I had two two final thoughts. One is just a recommendation, which is that if you if you guys are fans at all, you and you've never seen it, you need to watch the episode of Alton Brown's Good Eats. Oh yes, that is a misery adaptation. It's incredible. It's the episode on I, potatoes. Huh. Yeah, and, and huh. yes, though it also introduces the idea of amnesia. Um, he doesn't actually he doesn't know who he is. But um, watch that if you've never seen it. If you like um, if you like good eats. But the other thing, the only other thing I was going to say is that there were a few things in the film, and I don't know if this is present in the book, but um, there were some things in the film that I thought were interesting about his kind of his persona as a writer. So that she, you know, when he finishes a book manuscript, he has one cigarette that he lights with one match and he drinks a glass of champagne. And this is a true thing that he does. But Annie knows that he does this because he's talked about it in interviews and things like that. There are aspects of his public persona that she brings up and she's like, this is who you are. I know because I heard it in the interview. And I was thinking through when I was watching about the idea of kind of performing a public persona. And I and I wondered if, it, if that was in the book. Like, is Paul Sheldon in the movie? He seems to be very much what she thinks he is based on she's what she's heard about him. Like the things that she's heard about him are true. The things that he said on TV about himself are true, but is in the book, is there any more nuance there? Are there things that she says she knows about him as a person that aren't totally true or that are things that are, you know, he kind of said in public, but are not exactly who he really is. That was something that I was, because in the movie you see his publicist. And so there's Mm -hmm. that aspect who's Lauren Bacall. I was not expecting that. Um, Oh, Really? Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's, she looks beautiful. Um, but, you know, um, so you get that side of it that, you know, it's a it's business for him. Right. It's not just about the art of the writing. But I did, anyway, I just wondered if there's anything in the book about, you know, that kind of I go on TV. I talk about myself in interviews. I tell people my rituals for when I finish a book manuscript. And is that how it really is? Does he really do that every time? Anyway, that's my that was my only other thought. Much less so than in the movie. The movie plays yeah. that up. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's not a big part of the book. Yeah, I mean the the whole thing with the cigarette and the champagne is is in the book, and she mispronounces Dom. She calls it Dom Peregnan. Oh, does she? Oh, As so she funny. probably would. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I guess that I feel like that's a that's probably what I, that's probably how I would have pronounced it as a kid. Um, <laughs> I had only ever read the name Monique on a page, and so when I was a kid, there was a Nancy Drew novel I loved that had a girl in it, and I in my head she was Monique. 
Montague. <laughs> because I had never heard that name pronounced out loud. Montague is a better you. name. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Maybe so. She was supposed to be like a modeling agent. I think she was probably supposed to be very French. But anyway, that was that was my biggest one I mispronounced as a kid. Well, listeners, I hope you have enjoyed our uh, wide-ranging discussion of Misery the Book and Misery the Movie. Uh, if you've got questions or comments, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. The network has a Twitter handle now, which is CH Radio Network. Um, so you can go there and see what's going on on all our other shows. Speaking of which, if you haven't downloaded the other episodes of this series on um, on the shows, Christian Feminist Podcast, Sectarian Review, City of Man, and Book of Nature, uh, why don't you go do so? Uh, and you can hear more smart people saying smart things about Stephen King. Next week, uh, David Grubbs will be at the helm, and we are going to be talking about Gregory of Nazianzen's first theological oration. I don't know anything about that, so uh, I look forward to hearing it as you do. Mostly, I look forward to not uh, running the episode, because this is the third one in a row I've run. Um, And I'm sure our listeners are also looking forward to not having me run it. But until then, this is Michael Farmer for Christina Bieber-Lake and Katie Grubbs saying... Let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.